Hello and welcome to the World Nuclear News Podcast. I'm Alex Hunt. The UK has plans to expand its nuclear energy capacity to 24 gigawatts by 2050 and has just published its roadmap on how to achieve it with a combination of traditional large gigawatt and small modular reactors. The arm's length body established to deliver this new capacity is Great British Nuclear and I've been speaking to its chairman Simon Bowen about the roadmap for new nuclear in the UK, the proposed changes in site selection processes and more details on the SMR selection process currently taking place with six companies, EDF, GE Hitachi, Holtec, Newscale, Rolls-Royce SMR and Westinghouse in the running. Many thanks for joining us, Simon. Before we get on to the main subject of our chat, could we start with an outline of your background and your current role with Great British Nuclear? Thanks very much for uh, inviting me to take part in this, Alex, on what I think is a really exciting day for the nuclear industry in the UK. So we'll talk about that in a little while, I hope. So what my background is, originally, I'm quite old, so I'll try and keep it brief. I started in the Navy, so I was a submariner, so I did all my nuclear qualifications in the Navy. Left when I was 30, left the industry when I was 30, went into petrochemicals and spent the best part of 20 years working in petrochem, but mainly in operations. When people ask me what I am, I'm an operator and I run operating businesses. I left BP and went to work for myself for a while after about 16 years and then worked on my own for about three, four years doing renewable investments. So new starts, which was painful experience and delightful experience all in one, but probably more pain than delight because I realized that I'm not an entrepreneur or a business leader, which I think was a really great insight. So I went back into petrochemicals, ran a chemical complex out in um, in France for Ineos for a short while and managed to turn and then they got back into the nuclear industry as the managing director of Urenco, which was uh, which is a fabulous business and ran the site at Cape Most. And then after about five years there, I joined Babcock as the chief executive of Cavendish, uh, was chair of Magnox, chair of Dune Ray, and then lastly took over the nuclear defense business. Uh, so we're, we're running Babcock Nuclear, and I still chair the board of, of Denport Royal Dockyard, so I still have a foot in defense. I retired about 18 months ago. Uh, my wife guffaws with laughter every time she hears that because I retired for eight weeks um, and then got called to come and do this. And my role uh, originally was to run a sprint, which we did for about 100, it was 100 days for what was then Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson, came up with a report and the report has 25 recommendations, which still stand today. And then I agreed to take over as the chair when we launched Great British Nuclear earlier this year. So that is my current role and I'll be in post for a while to come. I'm sort of classed as interim chair, but Gwen Parry Jones, my chief exec, and I have agreed that we will stay on to create some stability for the foreseeable future while we get GBM set up and running. So yeah, and it is an absolute privilege. I am, you know, if I if I had a choice of a dream job, this would be it because it is well, it's a pile of fun with great people, but it is so important to the UK nuclear industry because we are now creating a renaissance for future generations. I'm honoured to be part of it. Sounds like an excellent background for your role with uh, Great British Nuclear, which launched in July 2023. As we speak, the UK government has published the Civil Nuclear Roadmap outlining plans to quadruple nuclear capacity by 2050. 
I don't know how much you've been involved in it, but I wondered what you think the key points are and what the significance of it is. So this is very much a, a department document and the kind of differentiation between what the Net Zero Department, DesNest does, and what we do is they do policy, and this is very much in the policy space, and we do delivery, but we also do advice. So we have had you know a chance to comment on the roadmap, and I think it's an overwhelmingly positive document, and there's been some great quotes from uh, you know from the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State today. It is a holistic and ambitious document, which is the next stage in the creation of the nuclear program for the UK. It's all-encompassing. It is a very comprehensive document. It reaffirms the uh, the role of GBM, and I'll probably talk about that selfishly first. So it gives GBM three roles. It talks about GBM running the SMR selection process. It then talks about us taking on broader nuclear delivery, which in that sense means if we do do, as we're signaling we are going to do another gigawatt, it is likely we'll run the selection process and then run the project. And also, when AMRs come to fruition, it is highly likely that we would run that as well. So we will run the overall program. And the third role, which is really important, is um, that we advise government on the development of policy. So that's embedded in the document, and for us, is very, very important. I think the other elements of the document that are important are the reiteration of the target of up to 24 gigawatts, some waypoints for that, 3 to 7 gigawatts every five years between 2030 and 2044, which I think, again, is very important because it kind of signals the range that we're aiming at. And then the the declaration that, that we are going to explore another gigawatt reactor after Sizewell, which for me is very, very important because there is no way that we're going to get to 2050 and 24 gigawatts um, without the whole range uh, and scales of reactors. Like Tom Greatrix from the NIA said exactly this this morning, and I absolutely agree with him. We will need all technologies to deliver on that. So I think those two are kind of targets and the the scale of the ambition and the role of GBN. It then goes on to talk about things like fuel routes, which is critically important, some big announcements on Halo and the critical role that Springfields and Urenkel have got to play in that. Uh, my old business, which I'm just delighted to see. And then it also talks about the importance of regulation and skills and supply chains. So uh, you know, a number of people may say, well, there's not a huge amount new in there. Well, well, there is. And it is the commitment of government to, you know, to go on and deliver the program. And it starts to spell out what the uh, what the heart of that might be. Final piece, which I, f- I failed to mention, is citing and the citing part of, uh, or, or, you know, how do you access sites for this new nuclear program? And that sits alongside the two other documents that have been published, which is the alternative routes to market and the siting consultation, which I can talk about both of those if you'd like me to. So what's the summary? Very comprehensive document, a real great step forward and a step in the right direction for forming the UK's new nuclear program, which we will be accountable for delivering alongside our colleagues on Sizewell and Hink. As you said, GBN is involved in the delivery side. So what do you make of the siting consultation, which looks to update the national policy statement, which dates back to 2011? Again, it's a very important document. The short-term focus of SMRs on the existing sites that are that are declared in the existing national policy statement, the eight sites, is an important set of criteria that we were applying anyway. But I think everybody recognised that if you're going to get after 24 gigawatts, then those sites are simply not going to be enough because it's a small. You know, we're, we're, we live on a small island, and we have got to have 
much more flexibility about the sites that we have access to. And indeed, we have to allow the market to have access to the site. So we are no longer looking at, or the consultation is suggesting, that we should no longer look at the kind of designation of sites. We should be looking at a criteria-based model, which allows the developers to identify the sites and the usages they think they need, and then the criteria that they think should be applied, which should give an awful lot more flexibility to the market to deliver on what I think is critical, which are market-led projects. So that's the first part of the national consultation. The second part is all about the, you know, how do you enable all of that and the, the whole role of planning, of environmental consenting, you know, how do you lean all of that up? And that we're talking about smarter regulation in the documentation, but there's also some really important consultation on those elements, because those elements, if we don't get those more efficient, then we will not be able to deliver on the target of 24 gigawatts. So a combination of more sites, simpler processes, and more enabling regulation are really, really important. And those things for the consultation are absolutely critical. So we're looking at getting a wider range of sites, maybe old industrial sites, rather than having just the existing designated eight large gigawatt suitable sites that have previously been identified for the UK? To a degree, yes. The existing eight sites, many of which are populated, of course, but we are looking at now acquiring access to, for the SMR program, gaining access to sites like Albury, Wilver, Isham, Hartlepool, and the other sites within, you know, within the existing policy statement. Th- those are recognised nuclear sites which we can build on at scale because the, the SMR program is all about scale and it's all about getting to the bars as quickly as we can to deliver on energy security and, and the journey to net zero. The, the views of the wider nuclear population are really, really important though because when you look at AMRs, then if you get things like passive safety approved and walk away safe, whichever way you want to call it, on a number of the AMR technologies, the sites that that gives you access to is so much broader. And therefore, things like the old industrial sites become more readily accessible because they they very likely will be in a different regulatory regime or a modified regulatory regime because the planning zones are, are going to be so, so much smaller. So the you know a more flexible approach to allow the private sector to identify these sites where they know they've got the demand that will justify their business case and a com- combination of that plus an, uh, an enhanced regulatory regime or a or a modified regulatory regime for the different types of plants. All of that will start to open up more sites and therefore more output to allow us to get after one, of course, the global challenge of climate change, but our target of 24 gigawatts, if that makes sense. Absolutely. The alternative routes to market consultation makes reference to development outside or alongside the GBM process. So how how do you think that's going to work? Is it going to be like Poland, where they've had plans for an official government-driven nuclear power programme, but also have a separate private sector-led project? How similar it is to the Polish problem, I'm not sure, because I don't have into detail of it. But in principle, what you talk about is absolutely right. I mean, when we did the study, when we did the sprint phase, the scoping work for GBN, the very clear advice from all of the nuclear systems around the UK, around the world, was you really do need a government program, government-led program and underwritten program to rejuvenate the nuclear industry and get it started again. And that's exactly why GBN has been set up. 
what that doesn't do for one minute is preclude private developers developing their own projects and we would want to encourage it the only reason we haven't done that so far and that's why we welcome the alternative boost to market is just bandwidth let's get set up on the journey to energy security and net zero through the smr program and now we're in a place where we want to really understand when developers tell us that they don't need any support from government they don't need any money from government well tell us more about that because we really want to understand it because having market-led projects will absolutely allow the government to fulfill on one of its aims which is to get as much of this off the government balance sheet and out of the public finances as possible so the sooner you can do that the better and therefore alternative routes to market and market-led projects are one of the major routes through which you'll deliver that so it's a crucially important piece of consultation and i presume you would still be involved as a facilitator yeah absolutely and we would that's exactly what we'd be there to do and you know depending on the level of support that they come back with and suggest would depend on our, on our level of involvement but would it be possible for them to have, to have a project without any involvement from us oh, well if it's purely privately led well yes of course but it, you know in the short term i think it is highly likely that we would be as a very minimum providing a supporting role so the highest profile gbm project over the last few months has been the smr competition with a lot of interest, of course, from around the world. How's that process looking at the moment, and what can we look forward to hearing in the coming months? Sure. I like to refer to it as a selection process, because although they might be competing, we are are selecting what we need. I think the um, one we are delighted, the first thing to say, we're delighted that we got six highly credible technologies that have come forward and want to be part of our process, which is great. We are at the final stages now of preparing and getting the approvals for the invitation to submit an initial tender document, which is the next stage where all six companies will engage with our contractual documentation in terms of how we think it should be structured. They'll submit the responses in their initial tender. We'll then go through a select, probably a down select or around about four with the aim to be placing contracts later in the year. That process is ongoing. I think the main thing that we're very focused on is, you know, people talk an awful lot about pace. My focus is absolutely on pace because we need to move quickly from an energy security point of view and from an international market point of view. But what I'm not prepared to do from the GBM board's perspective is trade pace for rigor. Because rigor in the procurement process can be very, very important. So We are in continual conversations at a board level to say, right, okay, are we really ready to go? Do we really have a good understanding of the documents, how they fit together? Because at a point where that's the case, then then we'll release them. So I'm delighted about where we've got to. We've got a great team of people within the GBN team and the advisors and the ground we have covered. You know, we only actually started recruiting people in May last year. So to be at a point where we're about to issue a tender is absolutely phenomenal and i'm delighted that we've got to where we are so we're on track i'm very comfortable about where we are we've got the right people around the table in terms of the the vendors and we have got a massive stuff to do this year because once of course we've got the tenders out we've then got to start pulling together what the development companies might look like so we've got a the tender is for the technology all the way through to completion of the regulatory process and final design and completion of design with then the potential to place a contract. But of course, we've got to have an entity that is going to develop the site, which is a development company. 
um, because we're looking at hopefully more than one technology that we'll be developing, we will be highly likely to ha having to pull together more than one development company who will characterize the site, apply for the, the consent and the environmental permit and the nuclear site license, and then manage the construction and then move into operation. So you think about, and the scale of those is probably about the size of a FTSE 100 company, each one. These are massive undertakings and we've got all of that to do. So it is a hugely exciting time, but actually pretty daunting as well at the same time. Indeed. Just to be clear, did you say you expect four technology providers to be selected? The initial down select will be from six to around about four, depending on, on how the guys get on. And then the documentation says between one and four will be awarded a contract. I think the optimum number is somewhere between two and three, as talked about, but we will be retaining our optionality. And obviously there are some important conversations for us to have with uh, with government and the Treasury to determine what in policy space they are prepared to support. And is each one tied to a particular site or is it site agnostic at the moment? So at a point where we place the contracts, Alex, what we'll do is we will have identified and acquired access to the site and we will match sites to technology and those sites will have the scale to be able to build multiple SMRs of that technology at that site. So, you know, the likelihood is it will be, you know, one, two or three in the first stage, but then being very clear that if these are successful as we hope they will be, and they can demonstrate that they're going to, their costs are going to come down with a, with a, you know, second, third and fourth unit, and we can convince ourselves it's value for money, then we want to just continue building on those sites. As we've learned internationally, that is the right thing to do. So I guess that if we're looking at, say, Wilfa, that's a site which has certainly got space for more than one SMR. So there'd be selected technology for an initial model or two, and then capability for more to be built at the same site. Yes, and our current view, and again, subject to the final stages of approval, is that we will be placing contracts for more than one, because what we have to demonstrate is that modularization works and therefore the investment that is required to build the modular factories, you, you'll end up with stick build if you just place a uh, place a contract for one. So what we're saying is, you know, somewhere between two and three is what would be the first contract. And then depending on the success of that first project, which would be two to three reactors, then we would roll out more at that same site. And that would be for each of the different technologies selected? Yes, indeed. And on the basis you, you mentioned, Wilver, I think there is a quite a big policy decision for us to make, which has not been yet made, is with the announcement that we are going to explore building another gigawatt after Sizewell, we've got to be clear about whether we're going to look to identify another site for that or whether that site should be Wilver. So there's a debate about whether Wilver is used for SMRs or gigawatt. Therefore, that will drive when we look to acquire access to it. And the goal is still for a final investment decision in 2029? <clears throat> yeah, the latest 2029. If we could do it before that, then of course we will. One thing we know that is going to happen in the next year is a general election in the UK, which at the moment looks like it could lead to a change of government. I just wondered how secure you think the future programme for nuclear in the UK is to political change. So I am very confident that the UK... And all parties within the, all political parties in the UK are committed to nuclear being a critical part of baseload power because every nation that has nuclear capabilities worldwide thinks the same. 
and the the COP, the declaration where 20 of the countries have said that nuclear will triple nuclear by 2050. I mean, that is massively important. And for us signing up to be part of that for global nuclear, I think sends a huge and powerful signal. So from a macro sense, I, I, I think we are in great shape. We've never been in better shape for nuclear cross-party. I think what's the other evidence I would offer to, to back that up? Well, at Nuclear Week in Parliament back in the autumn, we had the wonderful situation where Andrew Bowie, our minister, and Ed Miliband, the uh, shadow minister, stood up on the same stage and they were arguing about who was bigger fans of nuclear and gigawatt in particular. And one, I never thought I'd see that, but two, it just gave me a really, one, it made me smile, but two, it gave me a really warm feeling. So I think in macro terms, absolutely, I don't think that we will skip a beat in intent. Now, of course, when there is a change of party, then there is bound to be a little bit of a hiatus as you know the new team get their feet under the desk and determine how they want to apply their fiscal priorities and therefore i think the risk is more of scale and pace than you know wh whether we do or don't have a nuclear program if i was asked to bet money on it i would say that we'll continue with the scale and the pace that we've set out so far because actually there is no alternative more broadly, moving away just from the UK, how do you see the outlook for nuclear energy in the years ahead? I think it mirrors what I've just said in the UK. That COP declaration was was a seminal moment, really. I mean, it's a very, very important moment in the international nuclear industry. And it is one industry. This is not a kind of national industry where you can draw boundaries. Everything we do is international. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's a good news, bad news story. I mean, the brilliant news is, is that we will, as an industry, have the opportunity to grow multiple technologies at multiple scales and all learn from each other. The thing, having moved out of the nuclear industry and come back into it, the thing I love about the industry is everybody wants to learn from everybody else. I've never seen an industry where people are the thirst for learning off each other and are prepared to share. It is almost unique in that sense. So, the opportunity to learn and therefore all accelerate and therefore all contribute to climate change and net zero is just hugely compelling and a great opportunity. So uh, on one hand, that I'm just very, very proud to be part of that because I think it's got huge potential. The bad side is there's a global demand for capability and every way you look, we all want very similar skills. So Although the nuclear specialist skills are somewhere between 10 and 20% of what we need, you know, the 70, 80, 90% of the skills we need are skills that could be employed in infrastructure, in CCUS, in hydrogen, in petrochem. It is a massive market that we're competing with, and it's a global market. So that's the challenge. So I, it is hugely compelling and, and with massive opportunities. We have really got to get our act together in terms of skills and capability to understand how we're going to deliver on our ambitions globally and critically nationally. Yeah, workforce issues are definitely something that you do hear about from a lot of different countries as they scale up their nuclear energy programmes. Yeah, absolutely. And for a final question, what do you think the nuclear energy industry can do to help ensure the potential new capacity is delivered? I think the, the first thing is we've, we've got to act as one industry to start off with. So if you look at the skills and capability we've got, uh, I sit on the Nuclear Skills Task Force, 
And one of the words you hear most often is collaborate. And collaborate is an easy word to say, but a very difficult word to deliver on. Unless we share skills and we find mechanisms for sharing skills across the nuclear sector, both in defense and civil and across the boundaries, um, then it's going to be very, very difficult to succeed. So people are going to have to take a much more holistic, industry-based view of the world to have the industry successful as opposed to just themselves. So having not just a focus on shareholders, but having a focus on shareholders and stakeholders and be responsible for the success of the whole industry. And that's why getting behind something like Destination Nuclear is so critically important because we have to recruit as one. I think the other thing I'd say is the private sector, and I can say this because I'm, I'm still part of it, uh, you know, in part of what I do, and you know, it's where all my heritage is. We have got as many signals as we need now to invest. We've got to get on with raising the cash to invest in the infrastructure and the skills and the capability that are required. So waiting for a starting gun any longer isn't going to work. That starting gun's been fired, and today the announcements are part of that. So I think we've all just got to trust in the fact that we absolutely, this is going to happen, it's got to happen, and we need to be prepared with the right capability and the right capacity and look to the mechanisms to invest in the supply chain infrastructure so that as we build defence nuclear and civil nuclear, that we're not waiting for that capability developed, we've already got it. So it is going to take some bold leadership from everybody in the industry to both act much more collaboratively, but also to invest for the future, because all of the signs are the programme is going to happen, and it's now up to us to deliver it. Well, that's a great way to end this conversation. Exciting times ahead, and we look forward to hearing a lot more from you in the next few months, particularly over the SMR selection contest. Well, I'm delighted to spend as much time with the artists as we need to because your support, the support of the WNA and the support of the broader industry are critical success funders for us. Really. Well, that's about all we have time for. Don't forget to check out our show notes for links to further information about the topics covered, as well as a link to sign up to our daily and weekly email newsletters. And do feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss out on the next edition of the World Nuclear News. Nuclear News.